Greetings all and welcome to Marketing Call, the podcast editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Welcome, everybody. I, I want to start today's show uh, with a quick shout out uh, and mention of our namesake, Kevin Weston. Uh, I think of Kevin all the time, and I'm thinking of him now more than ever, just because uh, he's a brilliant man with unique insights. Uh, and it's uh, difficult to go through tumultuous times without having him to consult or converse with or disagree with or agree with. Um, and in an age of impressive uh, political activism and a global movement uh, for black lives. That's the number one person I would, I would want to talk to right now. Uh, but I also have to remember uh, how protest movements have changed uh, since I first met Kevin Weston 20 years ago, because he was famous for saying, and forgive me for repeating this, but I think it's relevant and important, that protests were corny. We would talk about protest and, and you have to consider the environment. Um, this was in the early days of the war on terror uh, during the war in Iraq. And we were all covering protests as journalists. And I think part of the association was it felt like um, the protest movement at that time was kind of a holdover uh, from the hippies, I guess you could say. Um, and it felt like perhaps not the most effective way to get people's attention or the most effective way to make change. Uh, I'm doing a lot of paraphrasing, but that's based on a lot of conversations with Kevin at the time. And that's why I wish I could have a conversation with him now. Um, because the protest movement has coalesced a global protest movement, bringing in millions of people uh, and changing a lot of global attitudes and forcing a conversation, a crucial conversation about racism, about anti-blackness. Uh, and I would love to hear him come around and say, protests aren't corny anymore. There are a lot of reasons for that. Who knows if that's what he would be saying. Um, but a, a lot of that, I think, has to do with the people who are involved. This is overwhelmingly a youth-led movement. This is overwhelmingly a movement that's led by people of color, that's led by black people, young people. Um, and I think that's part of the reason it's so effective and part of the reason we can, I think, officially remove the corny label um, from a protest movement. Uh, but I, I just wanted to acknowledge Kevin at the top of the show. He is our namesake. I think of him every day. I wish I could have him on the show. I wish I could call him uh, to talk to him about what his views are about what's going on in the world right now. Um, but thankfully, I have what I would consider the next best thing uh, to old, near, dear friends, uh, Paul Billingsley uh, and Charles Jones on the show. Welcome to both of you. Hey. Yeah. Hey, what's up? Paul, Paul Charlie. It's, it's a miracle, by the way, that all of us are here. For our listeners, this is, I don't know, the 10th time we've tried to get this crew together. <laughs> and uh, technology and the system have conspired to keep us apart. So this is a victory. In fact, the three of us are here today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was a little bit of a long winded intro, but I, I would hope that you guys would agree that a lot has changed in uh, what we think of as a protest movement in the last 20 years, uh, as evidenced by what's happening today. And that Kev would be the person to talk to right now. Um, I, I am really glad that you two can be here just because I think this is a good perspectivizing moment. Uh, you guys are both in the Bay Area. Um, you're both black men. We do have to acknowledge at the beginning uh, that we are not as young as we once were, right? We, you know, I mean, Correct. it's true. And part of the reason I love this movement is because it's a youth-led movement. Uh, people who are even shockingly younger than us. 
Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't room for a conversation here. And again, I, I couldn't be having this conversation with better people. I'm glad you guys are both here. Um, I want to start with you, Charlie, just because you sent me so many ideas to go on here, but I'm particularly okay, interested. Before we do that, yeah. I just want to say, um, keeping in track with your intro and your conversation about Kevin, mm-hmm. I have had that conversation uh, with Kevin, that whole conversation about protests being corny. Yeah, please illuminate us. Uh, and a large part of uh, his ideas around protests being corny was like, A, the age of the people who were partaking in the movement mm-hmm. and the age of like the tactics. The internet wasn't what it was. It, it wasn't then what it is now. And apps didn't exist at that time. And uh, social media didn't exist at that time. So like, I feel like definitely uh, today's movement work, today's protests would be uh, a lot more exciting to him uh, just because how of how much easier it is for people to like guerrilla style uh, put together a massive protest via social media, which he was ahead of the game on um, in terms of uh, kind of seeing its usefulness uh, in, in spreading mass information. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really good point. Uh, and maybe a better way to say it is that, you know, protest movements have finally caught up with Kevin's vision of what a protest movement could be. Right. I think, I also think a large part of it was the whiteness of those previous movements. And I wanted to have this conversation with him specifically because he did recognize the difference between like, what was happening in the Prop 21 protests, he recognized the difference between that and, say, uh, you know, the anti-Iraq war protests that was going on. Right. And part of that and and part of what's happening today is, you know, who does that issue affect, right? Prop 21 was about juvenile justice. That affects young people. That affects people of color. Uh, And as a result, most of the organizers and participants in those movements were young um, and people of color. That's a good point. I'm glad you uh, called back to Prop 21. Uh, Unfortunately, it passed. And then we right. had to deal with we had to deal with those <laughs> right. ramifications. But that was but that was but that was important because it taught people that you know you don't mobilize on one issue and that you got to keep fighting whether you win or lose. I know people that cut their teeth on that Prop Twenty One campaign and they still organizing to this day. Of course, those are the people who you know shut down Juvenile Hall, and those are the people who you know, are getting California to like reinvest into uh, putting its money into the people as opposed to, you know, uh, the military and prison industrial complexes. Yeah, it's the people who came of age in the late 90s with the Prop 21 movement, with the advent of what I would call a mass incarceration movement, which went away for a little while. And then I think came back with Michelle Alexander's book. Those people were always around. We were always doing that work. Um, but I, I think that was a really it's it is. It's I mean, I was surprised to see how many young people cared about mass incarceration five years ago. You know what I mean? It became like right. a campus issue. You know what I mean? Like once the global war on terror had kind of 
I don't want to say faded away, but changed in its context, people reorganized around mass incarceration. I think that's a big part of the reason why this movement is so successful, too, is the people who came of age in a mass incarceration movement. Um, right. And in some ways, that's a separate point. But your uh, your comment about the use of social media in this movement and how technology is finally caught up to people's needs in terms of activism, Charlie, is I think relates directly to your comment um, about mainstream media, uh, which is something you mentioned to me the other day. And I think your words were that mainstream media is unequipped to handle this or at least covering these protests because of, and this is your phrase, so I know I got this right, liberal capitalist foundations. Did I, yeah. did I get the phrasing right? So yeah. tell me a yeah. little bit about what you mean by that and also does how important is mainstream media if most young people are not getting their news from mainstream media anyway? Uh, okay. By current mainstream media's uh, liberal, liberal capitalist foundations, I meant that with the exception of Fox News, uh, most of the current, like um, TV news, especially uh, media organizations, kind of sell themselves as um, benevolent in some way, or like. Um, and you're you're talking about MSNBC and CNN. Mostly. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, and so like, um, whereas you know they'll have pundits come on and take Trump to task and da 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 da, they're talking more about. Uh, the civility or lack thereof of his words or like how he is um, damaging the norms uh, around laws and rules and practices in Washington, D.C. But up until recently, like they're, they didn't take seriously the racist, the edge that his campaign and his words carried and how much it had emboldened people who, uh, you know, there were the stories in the beginning after Trump was elected, you know, the spikes in hate crimes and stuff like that. But there also became this weird, this weird attempt at being fair to racists and people who identify themselves as Nazis and people who are a part of, you know, ancient industries that are harmful to environments and black and brown communities. And he aligned himself with everything that is antithetical to our movements uh, as black and brown people, whether you want to talk about environmental justice, whether you want to talk about racial justice or just straight up social justice. And Instead of, you know, a hard line being pushed on, like, the racism of what he's doing, uh, it was all about his lack of niceties and decorum and the fact that he was, you know, standing out loud, fucking with the norms. Right. Um, he wasn't he wasn't abiding by the rules of the old boys club. And if he exactly. were, it, it would be a lot easier to swallow his racism. Exactly. And it, yeah. it, it would also be a lot easier for us to, you know, benefit from while playing off uh, and still continuing like the political uh, sideshow of, you know, left versus right, blah, 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 blah. So what about now? What about their coverage of uh, protests? What about their coverage of Black Lives Matter? Is that a pivot? 
Is there a change no. or an improvement? Or you're saying no, they, they can't handle it because these are their foundations? The, no, there there's certainly been a bit of a pivot in coverage, but that's more about journalists being in the crossfire. Right. Um, right. Journalists have, and this is, you know, a privilege that as a black journalist who has showed up on a crime scene or showed up to a situation that was intense and tried to get more information, like your blackness will get in the way of your job. And, <laughs> every, uh, <laughs> every time. Every time. And, 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 and so, like, as a black journalist, I've never felt the privilege. I've always known that if I'm out covering a protest, when they say move, they talking to me, too. Yeah, that's right. My, my, my ass will get hit. I will get teary assed. I will get whatever the fuck the protesters are getting. Because so you're even saying though I'm standing here as a journalist, I'm standing here as a black dude. Whereas these mainstream media journalists, even ones of color, feel like they had a level of privilege that would allow them to like stand there and capture this stuff documentary style without being a part of it. And they catching the rubber bullets and they getting hit with the tear gas and they getting snatched up and arrested live on TV like any other black person would in that situation <laughs> or like any other person would in that situation, you know? So I think that's where the pivot in journalist coverage comes from, that journalists have felt the pain because up until we started seeing journalists getting fucked up, we were still talking about Macy. Right. So, I mean, you could say uh, journalists are getting their ass beat by the police and then they turn around and file a report and they say, did you know that the police beat people's asses? You know what I mean? Like right. they're right. <laughs> suddenly right. in an authoritative position. Right. Right. Because very, at the end of the day, Japanese. at the end of the day, their coverage shifted from peaceful protesters to property damage and riots because the people whose stores were messed up are their fucking advertisers. Right. Yeah. You know, that's how they pay their bills. They get more money from advertising than they do through actual like uh uh through views. They they cable share by they cable uh shares. You know what I'm saying? So what I wonder is how do we start to then uh use this opportunity as smaller media uh, companies and smaller journalists, uh, independent journalists and photographers, how do we then use this opportunity to, because we the ones providing all the best videos, uh, you know, all the videos right there on the ground. You notice like most of the videos you see in mainstream media of, you know, people being hurt by the police that are produced by the mainstream media are of journalists. Right. It's people on the ground with their phones providing us the videos of, you know, uh, the the dude with the bow and arrow and fucking uh, the guy with the sword and, you know, all this other shit. Dog you know walking lady. Right. Yeah. And so, like, um, you know, as smaller media companies, like, now is our time because we the ones on the ground and you know we are closer to the story and we can tell it the way it need to be told because we don't have like these greater corporate interests hanging over our head and right. that's what i mean about like mainstream media being ill-equipped they have too many corporate interests 
to tell the story the way it should be told. They have too many corporate interests to just cover this from the perspective of people on the ground. Right. So the other part of the question is about, you know, whether that's important or relevant when you consider that the majority of young people do not get their news. Uh, I mean, in some ways, this could suggest a generational split because young people are not getting their news from corporate traditional media outlets. All you have to do is watch CNN for 10 minutes and every commercial is for adult diapers to know that young people are not. It's definitely important. It's definitely important because young people aren't the, the voters. The highest voting demographic are older folks, 40, 40, age 40 and up. So what I feel is like the young people who are fighting the fight now, many of them can't even vote. Their power is in being the ground force that forces the people who can vote and the people who enact people's votes hands. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Um, meanwhile, those of us who can vote, we have a dual responsibility. We have a responsibility to back these young people up who are on the ground, and we have a responsibility to then turn around and turn their hopes and dreams into reality in the voting booth, because their hopes and dreams are our hopes and dreams. Right. Yeah, I mean, that those efforts have already been borne out uh, in a change in public opinion, which I think if the election were held tomorrow, uh, that would have a huge impact. You know, we don't know based on how 2020 is going, we don't know what's going to happen between now and November. Right. But if you think about public opinion, uh, and if you think about people's attention to this issue, those young people in the street who started this movement and are taking the biggest risks really are having an impact on, you know, whoever the older people are who might vote. Um, Paul, I they said on you, CNN that Trump had a 38% approval rating. And while that's extremely low, I thought that was extremely high. Like, wow, there's still 38% of Americans who people, think. Bro. I think that's the base. You know what I mean? That's the base. And, and I think we're in a polarized enough time that there are enough people who can repackage this uh, along the lines of his law and order message and say, there are people riding in the street. Uh, those are people who already have unfortunate predisposed worldviews uh, that that Trump is feeding into. But that's kind of always been Trump's issue is that he only ever played to the base. Uh, well, I mean, he has a lot of issues, but in terms of electability, you know, his strategy was always only ever played to the base because that's all you need. Um, but I think the base is being winnowed away. I think 38% sounds about right. That might even be the same amount of people who end up voting for him. Uh, but again, I don't look into crystal balls anymore after 2016. And I definitely don't look into crystal balls anymore after 2020. <laughs> so pure speculation. We'll, you know, we'll have to check back in in November. Uh, Paul, I wanted to ask you about um, this phenomenon that you mentioned. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, about uh, police kneeling with protesters. A lot of people have talked about what does this mean? Obviously, people see it in social media and it's like a little bite-sized feel-good moment. Uh, Many, many people have pushed back against that about how misleading it is or propagandistic it is. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about uh, police kneeling alongside protesters. Um, I actually, I think it's, I think it's a lot of all of that. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of cops really feel like, oh, you know what? I agree. And I think there's a lot of cops just being like, you know what? I'm trying to make you stop rioting. Um, 
but you know, it's, they had one picture of some guy who was who was kneeling with the protesters one day, and the next day he had a riot gear on and was fucking people up. So I don't think just because you need a police kneels with you means necessarily that they're for the cause or not. But it is interesting to see a lot of pe- a lot of police kneeling. It, I, I don't remember seeing police ever doing that before. I've never even to a piece had a very interesting video talking about that phenomenon. He was telling people to stop sharing those videos because (laughs) we get so short sighted. We get caught up in the mental candy, and we'll you know see a video like that, and some folks will really be like, "Oh shit, getting better," and move on. You know what I'm saying? Start just consuming their regular content. Right. Meanwhile, that same cop who kneeling with motherfuckers when he get that order. Yeah, that's it. I agree. That's I mean, I, um, I had a whole range of responses. I think people are looking for something, uh, as you say, to make them feel good, a piece of candy, and that, that does do that, right? Um, although that can be harmful to the overall message, I suppose. But I also, I mean, I'm curious what both of you think about this. I read... Um, an op-ed recently that said that, you know, police will be, basically the headline was police are going to be part of this um, solution, right? Like completely excluding the police is a mistake. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm, I'm saying this is an interesting perspective to me. And the person who wrote it was a person with a military background, a veteran who talked about the way that um, uh, troops were treated returning from Vietnam, right? Like all, all the stories you've heard about people getting spit on and called baby killers and how that has changed in the time since then. And people recognized um, that these were individuals who were part of a system and may ultimately be the ones who were harming the system. And they gave an example of a horrible massacre in Vietnam that was stopped by a fellow um, member of the military, right? That's very loaded, right? I, I, and I, I don't suggest the idea. Uh, I think it's very naive to think like, oh, you know. Um, my, re- my response to that is, the 57 cops in Buffalo who resigned from that special force in solidarity with two cops being suspended for pushing a 75-year-old man over busting his head and marching past him like nothing happened and then lying about it like it wasn't on video. Or the cops in the cops in uh, Jesus Christ. Where was the cop that uh, I think it was Atlanta where the guy walked out of uh, his precincts to thunderous applause uh, while going to turn himself in for arrest for abusing people at protests. So like while we have cops out here actively supporting abuse and while we have, oh, uh, Brevard County, Florida, the 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 uh, fraternity of police in Brevard County, Florida put out a message on Facebook to cops in Minneapolis and New York saying, hey, you know, we don't have some punk ass governor uh, standing up there talking crap about us. Uh, come, come work here. Come to Florida. Come work here. Yeah. yeah. Come. Yeah. And so, like, while we have so many police officers as individuals and departments and fraternities of police officers, out here openly supporting abusive behavior, I say like cut it at the root. If 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 you are more than a year out of uh 
out of the academy, you should be gone. If you have more than one abusive force complaint, more than one civil rights complaint, you should be gone. Now is the time for us to kind of rebuild and restructure the entire idea of policing uh, because the current model ain't working. And a little over 10 years ago, the FBI released a report stating that um, white supremacist hate groups had infiltrated police, uh, had purposefully uh, and coordinatedly uh, infiltrated police forces nationwide, and that it was a huge problem that needed to be addressed at the federal level. And that report was buried and people were fired and that department was shut down and folks was reassigned. So like, and, you know, from just like screen captures and stuff uh, from racism watchdogs on Twitter and Facebook, we've seen that a lot of these cops out here have uh, tattoos of known racist, white supremacist hate groups. So like, no, it, it doesn't, we don't need uh, the problem to be a part of the solution. We don't need people who are deeply embedded in a culture of uh, secrecy and silence, uh, you know, to, to be a part of the solution. If I could think of uh, a big sting in the last my lifetime of cops just busting dirty cops, you know, oh, today, you know, a ring of dirty cops was shut down. You know what I'm saying? Um, if 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 I had ever seen something like that in my lifetime, then maybe I could trust police officers on some level to police themselves. But I've never seen it done. Ever. Yeah, we we did mention uh, the military briefly, and Paul, I want to um, ask you about something that you sent me. I hadn't actually seen it since you sent me, but this headline that the uh, Marine Corps has banned the use of the Confederate flag. Uh, obviously, obviously, you know, uh, uh, I can be naive. So my first response was, you guys didn't already do that. You know, like <laughs> I thought maybe that would be like a headline from 1977 or something. Right. Uh, right. So is that what does that mean? Is, do do you take that as a mark of progress or is this kind of like a too little too late situation? What what, what was of interest to you in that story? I th- Again, I think it's a mix of both for me. I see the progress, but I see the. Really? Are you that late? I didn't. It's 2020, and but I think it's it's also what's going on right now. It's the cameras. It's people are seeing. It's the division that military people who are like, look, from a military standpoint, this ain't cool. No matter what race we are, whatever, whatever, if we're not all together and we're fighting each other, that's not good. I mean, it's interesting. It it feels like the the military is actually coming out pretty well in all of this, right? Yes. Like people in Trump's <laughs> right. own cabinet, uh, military leaders are saying like, no, we're not going to send troops no matter what the president says. Um, this is not to, you know, unfairly elevate them as, as heroes or something, but I would think public opinion is looking at the military now uh, as a group, you know, that is at least being reasonable about the use of force and considering right. their place in this issue in a careful way, which I think is interesting. You might not expect that from the military at this time. Right. And I, but I think it brings it closer to, for everybody. When you see it in your face on camera, you can't deny that happening. 
You know what I'm saying? That And Jeff Bezos is like, look, I don't have to worry about my kid getting choked to death. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it's, that's the reality for a lot of us that have, a lot of us grew up with, teach our children that. But, you know, it's, it's not a reality for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who have never considered this social issue before, who are being forced to consider it, right? People who don't experience it every day, people who are protected from it. Uh, and there's a lot of promise there. But it, it doesn't seem to stop certain groups of people who have their own opinions from recontextualizing things in a way, right? Absolutely no one is making the argument that, you know, uh, the police officer was not at fault. Um, and George Floyd's death, right? Nobody's saying that because you can't argue with that image. But people are, you know, recontextualizing in the way that they always do, talking about George Floyd's history and background, talking, you know, the, the kind of language like not all police or this isn't a systemic issue. We, you know, you hear like bad apple language. There's there's less of that now than there has been, which I think is encouraging. Um, but I am reminded that even I- images that you can't argue with, as you say, Paul, are still kind of being argued with in a way. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. definitely. Right. If you just and, have to be a little and, more nuanced about it. Right. And and to add to the to the four cops, dude, two of the cops, it was like their third and fourth day. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's that's another thing to think about. I'm like, I, I asked Charlie. I was like, so what do you think about that, Charles? Charles, yeah. oh, I don't know. I like, fuck that. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that, but it's an interesting thing, you know, and their excuse is like, oh, we look to him as a 19 year veteran as to what to do. And his response was, you know, be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's I think that illustrates. Um, you see what I was talking about culture. earlier? That's part of the problem. Things. Yeah, of course. That's part of the problem. They look at him as a 19 year veteran. Get all them 19 year veterans out of there. an all-rookie police force that's the the charles jones uh proposal for an all-year rookie yeah well this is this brings me to another point you know you guys mentioned uh prop 21 many 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 years ago when i was a much younger person i was involved with a group of people that were trying to reform the california youth authority right this came after a lot of high profile abuses were exposed uh in youth prisons so you know we got sent to study different models in other states there were a lot of people there policy people formerly incarcerated people it was a good group of people who knew what they were talking about um to come up with a proposal and go to meet with the governor you know who at the time happened to be arnold schwarzenegger now and, you know, to Schwarzenegger's credit, he was open to this. This was his idea, right? He was not a law and order guy. He, I think probably because he was a fiscal conservative, said jails are a huge waste of money, you know, and not to say he didn't have a heart, but that was probably his primary motivator. Um, so we studied this system. And one of the things that we learned by studying uh, jails in Missouri, of all places, uh, youth jails anyway, uh, was that they their staff were not guards, right? They weren't prison guards. The people who worked there were people who had backgrounds in child development, social work, you know, and part of the reason their system was successful was because of the staffing. So when we finally had our meeting with Schwarzenegger, we sat down and that was the first part of the proposal was staffing. You know, the people who should be working with young people who are in this system should not be, you know, prison guards. They should be people with these backgrounds, these relevant backgrounds. And Schwarzenegger stopped right away 
And the first thing he said at the table was, the prison guards union is the most powerful union in the state. Right? And he said, essentially, I agree with you guys. You're completely right. But they have this outsized political power that prevents us from making any kind of changes like this. And, um, you know, I, I'm not here to bash unions. I'm really not here to bash anybody. Um, but I, what I'm seeing in terms of and any obstruction to progress, and a lot of other people are saying this, is the outsized power of law enforcement unions. They deliver votes for people. Um, and it's kind of a complicated issue if you're like a truly progressive person because you you like organized labor, right? Like that's if you identify as a liberal or progressive person, you think it's good. Working people should come together to get power. Um, but what do you do when that power is preventing progressive change, which I think a lot of people are saying that the police unions are. Because uh, what do you, you know? What do you argue for disbanding the union? I don't know if that you know figures into your thoughts about what reform looks like, Charlie. But I'm curious Definitely. to hear what you think. Are, are, uh, you, are you a pro union person generally? I I am generally a pro union person, but in my personal opinion, fuck the police union. It shouldn't be allowed to exist because <laughs> of what you just said right there. The way they swing their political dick. So. I literally. But that's what all unions do. Unions, no, unions on, are successful because they swing exact, political dick. Except for one thing. Police officers are entrusted with the public safety and upholding the law. Right? So, whereas the fucking chill, the, the Hormel Chili, uh, 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 the people at the Hormel Chili factory can go on strike and, um, you know, we won't get no chili for a bit. Uh, still a problem. Poli- still a problem. If the police go on strike, right, the the public loses a vital service of a service that I believe is guaranteed to us through through uh, through taxes. So we have people who are public servants paid on taxpayer dollars. Literally, I watched the Philadelphia. John Oliver did this whole video about police reform last night. And uh, part of the video shows this Philadelphia police chief basically threatening to tell his officers uh, not to act in situations where they would normally need to pull out their guns because of restrictions placed on them. Uh, Paul, I want to add, this is a voice that I think has been missing. I don't know if you have thoughts about this. Um, but I'm very curious, at least I haven't seen it. Maybe you've seen it. I'm very curious about the perspectives of uh, black police officers in this moment. There are a lot of black cops in this country. Um, I've heard different attitudes, but I wonder about what is it like to be in that position? And you're not a black police officer, obviously, but I'm wondering you know, if you have family members, if you know uh, black police officers, if you could, if you've pondered this question. Uh, and if that is a unique position or for people who are involved in this movement, the, the blue comes before the black. Do you know what I mean? No, what well, for my, I have a cousin who's a state trooper in New Jersey. And uh, I can't tell you his name, but <laughs> but uh, he he's really like he's no, he's black. He's like, I'm black. It's different. I'm like, what, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, I was black before I was a cop or before I was a trooper and his dad was a trooper too. So, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, I think it goes to everybody's personal thing. There are a lot of black people who have things about being black just because, you know what I'm saying? If I become a cop, 
that's probably more useful to the commissioner or the cat, who I'm saying, whoever's in charge. Right, because you can point and say, look, we have black cops, right? Right. Yeah. And it's another black cop that does racist shit who supports our theory that, look, it's not that racist. You I was always very so interested in that. I mean, going back many, many years, um, because Boys in the Hood, I think, which I think still stands up. You watch that movie today. It's still a very good movie. They do a very good job talking about police brutality. But the main villain cop in Boys in the Hood was a black cop. Right. Right. Um, and so, of course, there's I mean, whatever. That's a movie. Right. This isn't we're not talking about. But but there are a lot of experiences that are born out of that. Um, it's 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 an experience that I'm curious about. I mean, we don't hear very many cop voices at all, partly because they're right. in unions, partly because they don't want to come out. And uh, and, I you know, I understand that piece. But I am curious specifically about that experience. I, um, you know, for my job, I go to Rikers a lot. So I befriended one of these uh, one of the corrections officers there. Nice guy, older guy, very interesting, very smart. We still have a lot of conversations. Um, and he said, you know, he was very progressive in his views. I mean, he was very like um, attuned to the issues of mass incarceration, attuned to the issues of anti-black racism. Now, he's probably a, a black man in his 50s. Right. I would guess 50s. Uh, and he told me that part of the reason he became a corrections officer is because he thought maybe this badge will protect me. Right. If we're if I'm in a position, you know, I didn't know how else to be safe. And I thought if I chose this path, you know, if I'm in a position where I get pulled over or whatever, that might be the thing to save me, which I thought, you know, pretty profound insight. That's pretty smart. Yeah. Um, but, and you know, and I, I don't think he's alone, but I, I don't want to speculate. I'm just very curious about that voice because, you know, we haven't heard that voice. But again, we haven't heard a lot of police voice anyway. Um, no, but it's always interesting. People don't know, you know, I, when you've been pulled over numerous times in your life, you know that when you're black and a black cop pulls you up, you don't know which kind of black cop you're going to get. Are you going to get a black cop that hates other black people? Or are you going to get a black cop that loves you, but is like, you're making me look bad? <laughs> which cop are right. you going to get? You know what I'm right. saying? But it's not. Are you going to get a cop that's like, oh, I don't want to show you favoritism just because I'm, I'm black and you're black. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's always, it, it, it trumps itself, for yeah. lack of a better word. You feel me? It just doesn't. That doesn't help me with the whole. Yeah. Oh, it's a black cop, man. Look, that doesn't. That never helped somebody. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know it I'm suggests saying? an interesting point, and I guess kind of what I'm getting at is something very similar to what, um, you know, Sandy Close said years ago. Do you remember when uh, Treyas was painting that mural, the Beat Within mural in the old office? Right. Uh, for our listeners. We all used to work in the same office. Uh, Jason Trask, very talented artist, a guy who was locked up in Pelican Bay for most of his life, got out, did a mural in our office, a beautiful mural. And one of the images was of police brutality. And instead of a police face, he used the face of like a pig, like an actual pig. And it was a big controversy in our office. They were like, you can't do that. It was an interesting debate, you know, I mean, especially considering, you know, whatever, it was 18 years ago. Um, but Sandy's right. point was that part of what we did in that office was was not to dehumanize people, right? Regardless of their role or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of people heard that point. And then Treyas, of course, I mean, considering his life experience and his worldview, you know, had 
intimate experience with police brutality and felt confident putting that up there. And then the compromise. I don't know if you remember the compromise, but the compromise. Yes, was, I do. They made it a mask. Yes, they made it a they mask. They made it a so, mask. They made the pig a mask. Yeah, which is, is I think, very telling. I won't over-explain or over-explore the metaphor, but I, part of this conversation today sounds like, you know, uh, and what you're saying, right? There is no, there are no monoliths, right? Like you can't, the, the, like a group of people you're talking about, like you have a black cop, you don't know what that perspective is going to be. Even within the black community, there isn't a monolith. And then if you look at your example of people kneeling, police kneeling, and your beliefs that there are some, you know, police officers that might genuinely be sympathetic, maybe not, um, versus Charlie's assertion that these uh, institutions themselves are so deeply flawed. Uh, is there such a thing as a police monolith? Um, and where where does that play in to this movement? Right. What does what does that mean? Do you, do you have to create a monolith out of a group of people in order to make this kind of progress? You know, which is like a very roundabout way of saying. I mean, basically, I'm like walking right up against the line of what a lot of police defenders would be saying, which is like, oh, not all cops, not all cops. You know. And I don't think that's what I'm saying, but I think um, I'm intrigued by this suggestion about groups and monoliths and and lost nuance. But that is not to um, make any argument or excuses or or defense of um, of these institutions. But you know what I mean? Like I, I I remember that debate about not using a pig face, and. Uh, I'm intrigued by it. I don't know if it has a place in this movement. I don't know if that weakens this conversation. And I, I don't know if there's room for those kind of points. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's always important. Yeah, because you, you have to remember the brainwashing. That's why Charles is like, Paul, you're in your Catholic church hype. You're, it, it's all about what was used to manipulate you and how the, the ways you're still manipulating yourself without somebody having to tell you anymore. You're trained. Right. Right. So there's an idea of kind of like institutional conditioning, right? Like right. if you are just like you and I are products of the Catholic Church, we're not always aware of how that affects the way that we act in the world every day. That's that's true for pe- members of other um, institutions. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, Charlie mentioned something when he reached out to me, which I really appreciated. And I hadn't lost this point. But I was happy to hear it that basically Colin Kaepernick is 100 percent vindicated now. And, it, you know, whatever it only took, I don't know, was it seven years or something? Right? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is that really true? Is Kaepernick straight up 100 percent vindicated? Uh, no, 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 no. They're the worst. The NFL is the worst. They're one of the richest. They make the most money. They're the worst. And I so, mean, you know, they're. Independent of the NFL, the NFL has so many problems. It's like that deserves its own show, right? It's like, uh, again, here I am, monoliths. But the leadership is really deeply flawed in the NFL. I just mean this, like for a long time, there was a very polarized conversation. Even people who felt like, okay, you know, I might be, I'm sympathetic to Colin Kaepernick's perspective and worldview and how important it is to talk about violence against black people and mass incarceration and his the issues he was trying to raise. But people felt like, well, kneeling is disrespectful to the flag or whatever the language was that people were using. That now has has turned. Um, and kneeling, you know, it's like really like what you're saying when you talk about that police act of, of cops kneeling with people. Um, that's Cap's move. You know what I mean? Like he really is. His 
his act of protest has now been adopted by millions of people worldwide. And I, I think that's powerful. I think that's special. Uh, and I feel good for him. I always like Kaepernick, always supported Kaepernick. Uh, always. And I like the idea that, you know, people are wearing Kaepernick jerseys at marches and that his form of protest that people felt like there was some cultural disconnect has now, you know, reached, uh, and it's not his protest, right? This isn't his movement. He didn't start it. Uh, people have been talking about this since the beginning, since before America was a country. Um, but you know, I like that idea, especially in the shadow of Drew Brees and, and Drew Brees not being able to get out of his own way, you know, <laughs> which is a big problem. Paul, any parting thoughts? We are, we are running out of time. Uh, unfortunately, obviously we could talk about this for hours, but we did start off talking about, uh, Kev, uh, nah. what do you think Kev would make of this? Is it like I a final, it would be finally for him? Uh, yes, I think I think it would be fine for Kev because I was with Kev. Sorry, I was with Kev during the Oscar Grant stuff too. So oh, we went wow. through we went through a lot of those together. Yeah, and it was more of a yeah, this is their thing. We're gonna film it, but it was still like a, we were in support of one side more than the other. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm it's hard not to be. Yeah, right. of course. Oh, look who it is. <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm, gl- I'm glad we waited. <laughs> Welcome back, Charlie. Be back for the outro. Um, so, yeah, I, I just asked Paul, um, since we started off talking about Kev, what he thought, uh, you know, Kev would make of this movement finally coming to fruition. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, it's purely speculative, you know, but... Um, I know that he was hugely influ- influential for all of us and shaping our worldviews, um, enhancing our worldviews, challenging our, our perspectives. Um, I, w- I wonder what you think he'd make of this. Uh, I think he would be super hopeful. Uh, I don't think, I don't think he would be too, uh, keen to lean in on um, calling what has happened so far progress. There would have to be massive structural shifts before you could get him to openly admit that uh, you know, protests uh, generate change. You know what I'm saying? Like actual change. But I definitely feel like he would be a lot more open to the idea. And I definitely don't think he would feel like the current movement that we send is corny. No. Yeah. Well, what do you, to that end, before we get out of here, what are your thoughts about the prospect for massive structural change in the wake of this movement? Is that realistic to expect? Uh, Is that, does it feel like that's where it's headed? Yes and no. Uh, Yes, there are going to be massive structural changes, uh, but no, it won't be as much as I'd like it to be, you know, before I leave this earth. There are still a lot of dudes uh, in power and being groomed into power that are going to hold up 
the old ways. You know, the good old boys club is is on its last leg, but it's a strong leg. So, uh, <laughs> well said. Very think, strong leg. <laughs> I don't think that, um, you know, we will see what I believe it is everybody sitting here talking right now wants to see uh, while we're here. But, you know, hopefully by the time our grandkids are old, they'll see it. I like that. I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, thanks to both of you, Charlie, Paul. I appreciate you guys coming on and staying with us, even though it took forever to get us all together. We kept at it and made it work. Um, I think it's a very illuminating conversation. So thanks to both of you. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer, Eming, who really hung in there. Really, really hung in there with yeah. you. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would say I hung in there. I kind of emotionally checked out yesterday, so. <laughs> that's a that's a coping mechanism. You know what I mean? That's just that's a survival tactic. So that's you gotta okay make it happen some way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, sometimes Thanks. you gotta check your emotions at the table. <laughs> that's true. Good very, advice. Good very advice. Very wise words. All right. Thanks to all the viewers for making this happen. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can have you guys back on again soon to continue the conversation. Uh, thanks to our listeners. And until next time, Quest On, everybody. Quest Down. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.